Hello, this is Blake, the esteemed host of Something Rotten. I have commandeered the show from Jacob. Don't tell him what I'm about to do, because I am giving you, dear listener, a taste of the forbidden fruit. This week's episode is actually the original Nebula exclusive bonus episode we did for the Manhunt season, which was season three of the podcast. We are bringing it here to the main feed to give you a tantalizing taste of what you have been missing. So here's how this works. Every season, we record a bonus episode that is not necessarily about the games we're playing, but about tangential media that we think would be good to check out after you are done listening to the season, playing the game, whatever the case may be. That in the past has been, uh, of course, movies, albums. I don't think we've done other games, but we did a, a big news story one time. We were just like, hey, go go read these old, <laughs> you know, like 100-year-old newspaper articles. It runs the gamut. We occasionally have guests on them. And the big thing is, Aside from this one, you cannot hear these unless you are a member of Nebula and get access to not only Something Rotten's Nebula feed, but all of the great stuff they're doing on there. Jacob has a ton of videos on there. Friend of the show, Leo Vader, has a ton of stuff on there. Patrick Willems is on there. Life Where I'm From, which is a a Japanese YouTube channel I follow, has a bunch of stuff on there. And also, Something Rotten. So if you're interested in hearing the rest of the Something Rotten bonus episodes, as well as all the future bonus episodes, and getting access to all of the other episodes we do early and ad-free, go to nebula.tv slash something rotten. Enjoy the pod. Hello, uh, beautiful Nebula listeners, and welcome to the bonus episode for the Manhunt series of Something Rotten. Uh, This is the episode where Blake and I are so happy that we don't actually have to talk about Manhunt anymore, and instead are going to bring up various and sundry other things that we think are interesting to talk about. Blake, what's up? Hi, Jacob. We're uh, we're gonna be giving, what, recommendations for movies, news articles, historical events you should read about, and otherwise shoot the shit for 45 minutes to an hour? Here's the first thing I want to ask you. Uh, This is the first week in uh, a month that you have not played a Manhunt game during some time in the preceding week. How did that feel? Honestly, it's been really nice. Despite what I've dedicated the last nearly decade of my life to i don't play jacob can attest i don't play a lot of video games it's true (laughs) and so when i am obligated to play one on a schedule or within a time commitment it just it's always a stressor on the rest of my life and so um not having to play manhunt was really great i'm now reviewing a game which means i'm in an even worse time commitment to a video Mm -hmm. game but uh, those few precious days without James or Daniel were just wonderful. James and Daniel, my two best friends of the fictional world. The two genders, James and Daniel. You think you think they would get along if they met? Who do you think would win in a fight? Because, uh, no, they wouldn't get along. It would ultimately lead to a fight. Who's winning? Uh, my money's on James. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Like Daniel, Daniel, he's a little, he's kind of beta. Is that okay to say? Here in a Nebula Loves exclusive podcast. He's a little cucked, yeah. yeah. Um, here's, honestly, here's what uh, might turn the tables. Uh, Daniel can aim a gun. Ooh, fair. He has like a very generous auto aim. So if he gets magnetized to James' head, I guess that's all she wrote. Have you ever looked at, there like, I think there's a whole website and also like multiple subreddits devoted to just kind of working out fights between fictional characters. That's not surprising to me. I haven't seen them, but no, that's not surprising. It's like who would win in a fight, you know, Thanos or Goku, and then they have like each of their like positive and negative (laughs) attributes listed out in, in an attempt to objectively determine who would win what fight. Here's one. Who would win in a fight? Blake or Jacob? Blake. (laughs) No, Jacob. You're you're always talking about how you could win fights against people, something that I have (laughs) never felt in my entire life. Well, it's mostly a bit because I think just about anyone under the sun, regardless of size, age, stature, could beat me up. Like, 
it it wouldn't be a competition. So Jacob, I think I have to give you the W on this one. Uh, oh, I'll, look, I'll take it. I, I won't. I won't argue too much. I do think I could beat up every billionaire, though. That's true. Okay, and you know what? Not that many people. So though increasingly more these days. I feel like I feel like when I was a kid, you just hear about like Bill Gates, and the world was like, ah, it's okay. He he was the one guy that got a billion dollars. And we didn't interrogate it too much further. But these days, you're hearing about all kinds of super villain billionaires. And I'm like, who is this man? We used to just have one, and we liked him just I fine. Think, I think they're both, there are more now. Uh, I also think they uh, knew in the past to shut the fuck up, to never oh, sure. talk, because we should and do want to kill them. Uh, and now they're like, mm, people want to hear what I have to say. No, we don't. And back in the day, it wasn't like Warren Buffett or whatever was going on Friendster and spouting his dumb thoughts. But now they all got Twitter and they're all fucking poison brained into posting through it. So they're like, people like me. People want to see my Instagram posts. Um, okay, Blake, I feel like we have each. I have brought one thing to show the class today. Y- you have brought a couple. Um, you want to go? We get. Let's let's alternate these you want to go first yeah for the listeners here's how it's gonna work we're just gonna talk about things loosely related to manhunt maybe not maybe just like they are things we thought about while playing manhunt that we thought hey if you like this game maybe check this thing out now what i want to say up top is i think when you deal with the subject matter manhunt is dealing with or really any something rotten game and you're kind of recommending material based on that uh, they're not always going to be the uh, happiest things in the world or most yeah. family friendly. And this is something I truly believe in, Jacob, and I just want to say it before we dive into things like movie recommendations. If you're interested in checking out anything we recommend, a game, a movie, do your research. Just on, like, make sure it's, like, something you want to watch and can handle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> don't don't think, because Blake recommended this, it is going to make for a great evening of sure. uh, fun time watching with the family. Uh, there's a website I highly recommend people check out in their movie watching experience. I use this website. It's called Does the Dog Die? Which is, feels, you feel like a psychopath typing that into your, uh-huh. uh, your browser. But it's actually a website dedicated to, uh, trigger warnings in films. So you can type mm-hmm. a film in and they have an amazing amount of like, even like niche underground stuff on there. And it will tell you like... It's like a very detailed breakdown of various trigger warnings that is in a dog, in a dog, in a movie. Like, does it have this? No, it doesn't. But this other thing is in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe be careful about that. The dog so, doesn't die, but it goes but, through some scary places and it feels sad for a while. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at Reagan's little ass right behind you right now. Hopefully that dog doesn't die. Um, I just want to say that at the top. Um is there, like, an equivalent for video games? That's a great question, and I don't feel like I... I don't know. I'm sure there is yeah. somewhere, but I don't know if it's as as collective. I mean, is it possible that that's on Does the Dog Die oh, I don't as know. well? Like, do they do games? Games have been shipping with them, which has been interesting. Like, the Dead Space has one. Uh, the new they Dead have, Space has one. They have an entry for god of war but it it's it's not very complete Mm. wow they have the making of god of war 2 in here as as a movie but they don't they don't have anything formative text for me the making of the god of war ps2 games they come on the disc you remember them Oh, oh! Believe me, I watched all that shit. I watched so Corey good. Barlog making a little like peanut butter sandwich before the day began, and was like, "That's what it's like to make video games." Um, I did you see actually the with the very recent release of the Dead Space remake? There's yep. been some positive writing about uh, how that game incorporates trigger warnings and like a a more holistic uh, way, kind of like like getting to the accessibility level that that you know naughty dog has been pursuing with the last of us and stuff like that now now dead space is kind of doing them um and and so there's like 
you you have you have things like uh the upcoming section contains depictions of self-inflicted death you know so it's like it's like i'm okay with murder but i don't want to see someone like kill themselves which i don't say in a mocking way that's a totally you know fine thing to say and so they're like you know it's kind of more specific because just saying horror like you know it's gruesome really doesn't describe everything that someone might be trying to avoid so that's like a thing in the menu you can turn on like hey give me these warnings when these are coming up because nothing like that's popped up for me Mm-hmm. yeah oh, so there's there's like an accessibility there's kind of a toggle that you can turn on and when you turn that on then the game will in-game show content huh. warnings before something happens i have That's um cool. my my friend and and video essayist laura crone yeah has this video that i really like um where she's talking about a, a number of things but talks about her time working in a haunted house or like in kind of like i don't know if it's a house or like a hayride or something like that but something where you jump out at someone and go boo um and and she talks about how that is such a kind of that's a situation that you never run into in real life you know like like being in a haunted house is kind of the only time that most people have where they're in a scary situation and someone jumps out and says boo and she talks about like people come there really excited about it like feeling like they know what they're getting into and then they realize in the moment that that is not something that they're kind of able to handle and of course they're realizing that in the moment because they've never had a moment like this before in their life you know they can't look back on the other times they've been through haunted house to assume they know how they'll react when they're in a haunted house and i think about that pretty often of like you know i don't actually know what's going to be my you know mental physiological reaction to something because i have never experienced this before and i just i don't have like something that i can point to to be like this is going to happen again um that's really interesting laura crone laura crone uh yeah makes great videos um anyway blake with with all that said let's let's talk about some gross movies sure with all that said i'm not gonna run down every uh thing you might be uh every trigger warning in these films so do your own research um but i I kept them tame despite how gnarly manhunt is i didn't go overboard with this because you know i don't want to out myself as a little freak uh the first one jacob pin uh, uh, a curveball i didn't tell you about this one because i came up with it at about 1 30 in the morning last night while i was laying in bed and that is the french film man bites dog a certified classic have you seen this no i i am familiar with the expression man bites dog uh but no i haven't seen the movie this is a fantastic movie i think it's pretty easy to track down either on dvd or uh streaming i think it's on hbo max uh criterion collection has put it out and maintained kind of rights over it so they have it on a few streamers that you can watch looks like it's on hbo max okay perfect um this is Directed by three different people who are also the central cast. Uh, Remy Belveau, Andre Bonzel, and Benoit. I'm not sure how to pronounce Blanc, that one. The main character <laughs> of Knives Out, Benoit Blanc. <laughs> That's right. Um, but it, it is like a very low budget kind of a uh, mockumentary where two filmmakers are... Filming kind of a slice of life, day in the life, how one lives as a serial killer. So they are following the serial killer as he is kind of terrorizing a, I, I guess it's maybe a small French town. I'm not sure exactly the setting. Um, but this thing is a brilliant little piece of satire and comedic, like black comedy writing. It is just like a deeply funny film within it's a um, very troubling subject matter, but mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's tracing a lot of the um, a lot of the same paths. A lot of these media take where it's like a pretty grisly film that is also a commentary on media violence and kind of our consumption right. of it. Like this film never really within its fiction asks questions of the killer. You know, it's very much played like 
Like you're watching any other documentary where they're just kind of like following someone who has an interesting job. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Kind of like um, you see a lot of YouTube videos like I followed around a UPS de- delivery right. driver for a day. That's very much what this film is. So you're following him on his uh, his day job. He's like a uh, he's he's a mail carrier. And then at night he's killing people. And so you follow him for an hour and a half and just kind of figure out his whole deal. You meet his family, his girlfriend, his friends. You see him kill all manner of people across this, like, very small French town. Um, it's just a I, – I don't think I have anything deeper to say about it personally. There's a lot of amazing writing on it. Here, well, I have I have questions as someone who sure. has not seen okay. this. Uh, one, what's the – what is the dude like? the the serial killer like do they portray him as a lunatic as like a normal guy you know how is how is his depiction in the film he's played very straight like a normal guy he's he's very charming he's very quick-witted he you know he spends a lot of time kind of just playing around there's a very famous scene where he plays around in a and kind of a town square with kids who have pop guns and he's like kind of pretending to shoot them. He's, you know, he's shown within his neighborhood and his community as a member, as a participating member of the community. Like he is played as like a normal everyman, which I think kind of speaks to the theme of the film where, you know, we're normalizing violence mm-hmm. and we're normalizing killers within our fiction and within our society. Like he is very much just kind of like, ah, he's just a normal dude, you know? And then he, as part of that, right. it's not like Buddy has a dark past. It's like, and as part of his normal everyday activities, here's him brutally murdering an old woman and throwing the, someone's body into a quarry, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and and so it sounds like one of the things that we talked about with, with like, that was good in Manhunt 1, that was not present in Manhunt 2, was, was this sort of, like, ironic mm-hmm. distance where, like... Manhunt 1, you would watch James Cash do horrible things, but then because you had the director ostensibly filming it and being like, haha, yeah, this is great film, oh, I'm, like, getting hard watching this, it, it kind of felt like, you know, it, it removed itself a little from the from the actions of that. It seems like, with this idea of, like, making a documentary about it, that would also be kind of the conceit, you know, that that it's like there's a distance or are they, you know, are, are are they right in there with it? They're right in there with it. And as the film goes on, I don't want to spoil too much because I do like think people should watch this. This is a fantastic movie. Um, mm-hmm. They the directors of the film, which are also the directors of the real movie, but the directors of the documentary become more friendly with the serial killer and that ends up kind of getting messy by the end of the film where things do actually end up taking a pretty dark turn. Uh, but there's never really, mm. it does not maintain too much of a distance. You kind of see them. And this is perhaps a bit of a meta narrative get them closer over time to the killer and start to befriend him. Right. Which I guess, you know, is its own kind of mm-hmm. idea about like documentaries mm-hmm. and whatever that like, it is really hard to be an impartial yeah. observer. <laughs> okay. One more, one more question about it. So, w- the expression "man bites dog" is obviously like you know, dog bites man. That's not a story. No mm-hmm. one cares about it. Man bites dog. That's unusual. So you know, it gets a headline or whatever. W- what do you think? What is the significance of that oh, I in the movie? Don't know, because the French title translates to "It happened near your home." Which, so oh, I actually weird. don't know what the title. It's like I wonder if that's like an American just being like, "Well, that's not good. We need to name yeah. it something." Catchy. Yeah, I really, I, I'm not sure. I wish I had a better answer for you, but I don't know. There is. I've always, I've just, I've loved that expression. There is near near where I grew up. There was Man Bites Dog Theater. Mm. That was a place that would kind of put on like experimental plays sometimes that i thought was very cool. i, I want to say one thing uh, one last thing about this movie jacob because i think you'll get a kick mm-hmm. out of it it has m- one of my favorite on-screen de- murders of all time so oh, okay we're following the serial killer and he's looking for a victim they find this old woman who you know they they they, they trick by some way lie to her to get her to let them up to her apartment and while they're there mm-hmm 
the serial killer pulls out a gun, the woman kind of isn't paying attention. Um, he pulls out a gun, and you're like, oh, this is the moment. He's going to shoot them. This is going to be really loud. He's in an apartment. And instead of shooting him, he gets up in her ear and screams at the top of his lungs and gives her a heart attack, and she dies that way. <laughs> it is such a shocking, surprising moment that always stands out to me. There's a lot of really fantastic uh, scenes in this film. That's one of them. Another famous one is him explaining how to uh, throw a, bo- a, a body into a body of water and uh, weigh it down so it does not uh, float to the top, which is one of the more famous moments mm. in the movie. Great stuff. You know, there's there's this whole I, I was thinking about with our with the the thing that I'm going to talk about. Um, there is this whole kind of category of true crime people or people who watch CSI or whatever who are kind of like, if I got away with a murder, I would I would like I would get away yeah. with it. You know, no evidence from me. I could be a pro because I've watched cops like solve these things so many yeah. times that I know what they look for. Uh which always seems uh like a very silly perspective to me. My recommendation, don't test it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how about uh don't don't end up with a body on your keep hands. Keep keep that in your head. Murderers why not? Uh, don't do that. Um, okay, so here here is what I want to tell you about, uh, which is it, it is it's an interesting thing because I think of myself as a very uh, I, I I have a lot of problems with the true crime genre, mm. and I certainly do not want to be a podcast that just talks about uh, crimes that sure. happened. But I heard this story about kind of the the aftermath of one that I just thought was so interesting and and seemed so relevant to the mm-hmm. themes of of snuff and of like you know manhunt one and kind of filming murder and all of that that I I, I just wanted I wanted to talk about it I thought it would be interesting so this is about the uh the the woman Ruth Snyder who is uh one of the few women executed by the United States uh do you know one of a, a kind of a thing to just get out there early on is like it's kind of a big deal when a woman gets executed that just does not happen uh very much um this was uh there there are kind of I don't know how much you know about capital punishment but there are kind of like two eras of capital punishment because it was in fact uh not not something that United States did for like a period in the middle of the 20th century. And so, and so it like started again in like 1975, but for, you know, for like, you know, a couple decades before that, the U S wasn't executing anyone. This happened near the turn of the 20th century. So this was in kind of like the earlier part. Um, Ruth Snyder was uh, a woman who, along with a, uh, you know, like, a man that she was having an affair with, uh, killed her husband. And um, there are there are reports that she just was unsatisfied in the marriage. There are also reports that she was being abused by him. I don't really, uh, you know, not, not going to weigh in on the morality of that. Um, but one of the famous things about it was she convinced him to take out a life insurance policy uh shortly before she killed him the life insurance policy specifically about like hey if i get murdered in a violent way this gets extra pay classic move uh, you know so classic move by the kind of when when someone close to you in your life uh encourages you to get a life insurance policy that pays out extra in case of violent death, I do feel like you want to re-examine uh, your relationship with that person, maybe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, her and this other man, Henry Gray, um, murder her husband, uh, stage it to look like a burglary very poorly. Uh, they, like, don't uh, actually steal anything from the house. The break-in looks weird. Um, it's almost immediately figured out that, in fact, they two did this together. All of that is background. That that part is not nearly as important. Uh, what is important is that she was sentenced to death, and this was early on in the existence of the electric chair. 
uh, which is, um, I don't know, one of one of our more monstrous modern inventions, um, maybe. But uh, the electric chair was invented in 1889. Um, this was in her execution was in 1928. Um, it was first used in New York. In the United States, the first place that had a functioning electric chair was New York, and this was also an execution in New York. Um, and that alone made it a kind of, like, I don't know. It, w- it was a big deal. Yeah. This is one of those kind of, like, disturbing things you read about where the, the reports were, like, there were, like, tons of people outside the prison on the day of her execution. Just, like because it was a big story and they wanted to be there even though this was not it wasn't like a public hanging you know it was it wasn't like they were going to get to watch but they just knew that it was happening and they were in there that's all the kind of happening outside stuff but uh when someone is uh executed at least in this situation they were allowing a couple journalists into the room to you know write about it, cover it for newspapers. Uh, newspapers were very big. Uh, then a difference between the 1920s and the 2020s. Right. Print media was something that you can make a living in. Um, but there is one newspaper, the Daily News, uh, that was, you know, kind of schlocky, kind of tabloidy. Uh, I found this really interesting. It billed itself as New York's picture newspaper mm. uh, in the 1920s. They were like, all these other newspapers, they're just going to tell you about it with words. We are going to show you a picture right. of it. And so they thought, what if we could get a picture of this execution? And so uh, they decided to do that. But it required like a lot of... A lot of work. Also, I will say most of most of this information is coming from a very interesting article uh, from the Smithsonian Magazine called How a New York Tabloid Captured the First Photo of an Execution by an Electric Chair. Uh, so that's we'll, we'll put it in the, the episode description or whatever. Um, so there <laughs> it it feels almost heisty how they had to do this, where the problems were one. The guards at the prison apparently knew the faces of every photographer in the city, like every local photographer. And so they needed to get someone from outside of New York to take a picture of this. Two, cameras were not uh, small or subtle, and there was no photography allowed in during the execution. Mm -hmm. And so what they rigged up, and this is the part of the reason that the Smithsonian wrote about it, is because this camera is still it still exists it's in the national museum of american history it is a camera that the photographer wore around his ankle it was it was an ankle cam that he like covered with his pants and then the third hard part is they couldn't you couldn't use a flash because then everyone would know hey someone just took a picture in here and so instead they had to do a long exposure and so he had a wire that ran from the camera on his ankle up to his wrist and the wrist controlled like like he had a button that controlled the lens of the camera and so he could open it and do during this he snuck in he raised his pant leg he did a 6 second exposure which is like a long you know, that's that's a long time to expose a thing because it was a, a low-light situation. Um, and then he sped away, and the kind of, you know, the point of this story is the New York Daily News, on its front page, it's above, you know, above the fold headline, was a picture of a woman in the act of a getting electrocuted in an electric chair. And it was the first ever, like public footage of an electric chair execution too right yes yeah and it's just it's just like you know we we talked about in the past uh like with manhunt like kind of the weird seedy parts of the early internet of like hey watch watch fights watch executions watch you know like the the predecessors to live leak and whatever it is crazy to think about walking up to a newsstand 
and and just like the picture staring at you is a woman being electrocuted. Yeah, um, I guess. <laughs> although I, I, I well, I'm yeah. not very surprised by it, but you know, it's yeah, it, it's weird to think about. I guess the ways we've changed and the ways we haven't, mm. because as as we've talked about, sometimes you feel like you are on you know any social media and you just get or watching the news and you get yeah. blindsided by like here's you know here's the cops killing someone or whatever um but i do think the kind of you know it is both because this was such a a, a tabloidy right murder that it was like a big story but also because like you know the the story here is really just like look at how this person died which I do think is different. You know, it, it's like, you know, when when someone is murdered now and the the picture is being passed around or the video is being passed around, it's usually the context yeah. of it is crazy. You know, that, that they're, they were unarmed or they weren't doing anything or whatever. This is just kind of like the story is, look at how the state yeah. murders people. And, and it's a really, it's a bizarre thing to think about. I don't know how much I've I've been fascinated by by capital punishment, uh, and I, I will say I am uh, firmly anti. But I do think it's a very interesting topic, and and the the kind of course of capital punishment, at least throughout the U.S., has kind of from some perspectives, it seems like it has got uh, more humane. But if you look a little closer. It's really just that it looks more humane, not that it actually is, you know, that that like now most executions are done by lethal injection, which looks like a fairly painless way to die. Like, oh, you you go to sleep. That's it. Not the case. Not it, it is not <laughs> not a pleasant or calm way to die. And in fact, you know, if you were going to do what was best for the executed, it would probably be a firing squad or a guillotine yeah. or something like that. But when watching those things, they look incredibly yeah. violent. When watching uh, lethal injection, it looks almost like it's humane. Uh, and this idea of like the electric chair is, I, I think it was kind of a, even though the electric chair continued to be used for many, many years after this, People seeing this, I think, was a kind of like coming to terms moment with like, oh my god, this is this is what we're doing. Yeah. Like this is this is the way the state is executing people in a way that I, I find really fascinating, especially because it was in as mainstream a source as the front page of a newspaper. Yeah. Um here's here's a fun fun fact. In Mexico, there are these Pretty notorious magazines. The popular one is called Alarma. They're mm -hmm. e effectively like death magazines. And their journalists just go take pictures of various, whether it's gang or... So this, it's like it's like faces of death. Kind of. But with, you know, where where it's like they, they weren't killed for the purpose of the right, magazine. Right, 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 but right. But the magazine has captured their death yeah whether it be like accident victims or crime victims and these things that i don't think they're really around anymore at least the big one isn't but at one point these things were huge i have a number up here that uh it one point it was they were printing 2.5 2 to 2.5 million copies every week of each new issue. How does that compare to the circulation of Game Informer? Just <laughs> We're about 6 million, so... Oh, okay. Shit, Alarma. Um, but there's a direct through line you can draw to something like printing this woman being electrocuted on the front page of, you know, this newspaper to where journalism would go later. 2.5 million it copies a week of your issues. It's not an underground thing by any means. That becomes no. a mainstream publication. Yeah. Um, so you could see this continued, this alarm didn't shut down until 2014. So we always loved that shit. Jeez. And there's a, uh, little, just a point being a little side recommendation. There's a vice documentary about Alarma magazine. Mm. I highly recommend, uh, but they follow them while they're doing their nightly work. So 
be careful about what you see in that because it's old vice when they were publishing some wild stuff on youtube yeah i mean and that's that's part of the fascinating thing about this is like on one hand you know them printing this picture people were like oh my god how horrible on the other hand uh it did really well for them. Like that newspaper yeah. sold a lot of copies uh, and, yeah. and you know, kind of like it is talked about now in those kind of grandiose terms of like what one of the most important pictures ever taken and stuff like that, which it, maybe it is, but also, you know, like it is, it is just quote unquote, just a picture of a state execution, you know, like it's, yeah. it's weird how these things can can be both at the same time. It's 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 kind of fascinating. Obviously, the deaths are different, but like one of the most important pictures of like our generation is also a death photo, which is the falling man from nine nine eleven. And, you know, mm-hmm. think about how widely that was spread and how many pictures, how many that was printed, I think, on the front of the New York Times, you know. Right. So, like, if anything, this <laughs> execution photo from 100 years ago was, like, kind of setting a precedent for where a lot of journalism would go in the future. A lot of photojournalism where it's like, you know, if, if it bleeds, it leads. Like, if it's the right picture, we're they're people are going to put it on the front page and people are going to eat it up. Yeah, I mean it, and it's I've I've talked about previously like a long time ago when I made my video on on the uh cultural legacy of the headshot um there's there's a famous photo from Vietnam referred to as as Saigon execution um that's the the execution of um Nien Van Lem uh who was a you know I I I believe a you know what? I don't even want to. I don't even want to guess. He was he was being executed by our side, quote unquote. Right. So it was like an ally uh, executing an enemy. But it is this this unbelievably kind of blunt picture of just like there is very little artistry in the photograph. Yeah. It is just like here is what it is, and. At least, you know, in in the writing of, like, one of the papers that I referenced in that video, they talked about, like, that was kind of a turning point for U.S. public feelings about Vietnam because it didn't look heroic. It didn't look kind of like, oh, we're there saving people. It's just, like, a picture of a man shooting another man in the head. Um, And so it is these, these, these pictures of death, these faces of death, like... You know, clearly when they land, they land. And and one of, honestly, if you want to bring it into the modern day, uh, a, a kind of worrying thing, I feel like, is like we see this so much that it does it even have the same power. You know, it's like it's I, I, I don't think if you were alive you know, when Saigon Execution was published, or even when Falling Man first came out, you were not n- seeing nearly as much violence as as we do just kind of on a day-to-day basis now. Yeah, this is something I think about all the time, especially in 2023, you know, a few years after 2020, when you uh, had no choice but to think about death every day and be confronted with it. It's like, I think a lot of society is no longer shocked by just like the image of a corpse which is disturbing in its own right obviously there's a level of death and dying that like people will still be horrified to see but like just a corpse maybe a corpse of a violent accident i think by and large like a lot of people these days are not affected by it anymore and it's something like i wrestle with like the idea that like you know, you can see plenty of corpses on the news, and I, I, re- I noticed I myself am no longer, like, horrified by it and no longer disturbed by it. And it's like, well, that's not great. That's not a good thing we've kind of gotten to these no, days. No, it's, yeah, and it's really, you know, I, I kind of, I think about, it, 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 has, it has several connections to kind of, like, the, the civil rights movement and racial violence. Mm-hmm. Because, like, obviously one, one of the most famous uh, corpses, I hate to phrase it that way but like like Emmett Till's body and and his mom's choice to not not cover it up to kind of like have the violence that was done to him 
be visible and and then also have that picture published um you know was was kind of well not it did not cure you know racism was a moment for like a lot of people reckoning with the kind of the horror of lynching in a way that had been more abstract previously and you know now was made unignorable and in the same way filmed civil rights marches where cops started beating you know peaceful protesters or whatever was another moment of like watching that on tv being like oh i had made up something in my head but i'm watching it now and this is you know like racialized violence presented to me unfiltered through you know whatever um and that was really important and and although that still that still happened like like people do see things and reckon with it but at the same time now it just feels like you could have the most the most obviously horrible video in the world you know you you yeah. could have eric garner's filmed death and people will still lose their mind trying to explain why it was justified i imagine yep. that also happened during during the civil rights movement and before i i don't think that is a fundamental change but it's it's really hard to to watch that happen because it's just like, well, what what will prove the realities of like, you know, white supremacist violence to you? If this, if the, if just the most obvious filmed like depiction of it in the world doesn't sway you, then will anything? Uh, yeah. And it is it is something that I I kind of I I, <laughs> I despair over occasionally. Sure, you ready to talk about the next thing? <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on. Cannibal Holocaust, baby. Here we go. The magnum opus. <laughs> what a transition. All. That's right. Our next recommendation is Cannibal Holocaust. I don't know. The most infamous movie ever made? It's got to be one of them. Certainly. I mean, it's like, you know, it it's certainly mainstreamed enough that yeah. like me, a person who didn't pay attention to these kind of things, had heard of it. I think it's like, okay, I, I'm of a few minds of it. I think it's one better than what most people expect. Like the movie has a good reputation in a lot of film circles, not just like extreme underground circles. Like it's a fairly well-liked movie. It's a very Mm well-made movie. Um, That's okay. That's actually, that's one of the things that I want to hear about because the only thing I know about this movie is its reputation. And I feel like that's completely separate from the filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, completely divorced from the the gore and the violence and all that it's a revolutionary film just in terms of like it's set up like however you feel about like found footage films these days like this is if it's it's agreed upon this is basically the first or the first big one which in and of itself is just a revolutionary concept you do not get you know major tin poles uh-huh. of american cinema like blair witch or paranormal activity without something like cannibal holocaust coming around in the 1980s um is cannibal holocaust a, an american film it's a, a italian film okay mm-hmm. um directed by ruggiero diodato who just passed away a few weeks ago uh very sad um the thing i think is very interesting about it and it, it's it's certainly not alone in this um but you know every so often a film or a work of art comes along and just completely shatters kind of the agreed upon limitations of good taste in in some ways this show is uh devoted to video games that did that (laughs) sure i mean i mean manhunt yeah Mm -hmm. manhunt is really one of them um and cannibal holocaust is an earlier one for kind of like the still era of film we're in this film came out in 1980 and i think that's always i think there's a value in that in one i think it's good to push boundaries you know i think it's also helps everyone else kind of reacclimate to the times you know where the next movie made is like okay cannibal holocaust went this far and maybe that was too far but everyone else uh-huh. we can walk it back a few steps and this is now where film going can go this is how transgressive we can be this is 
the way we can use taboo subjects to approach, like, you know, political commentary or social commentary, which Cannibal Holocaust is a very politically and socially minded film, you know? It's just also one that, it's one that communicates in murder and violence and gore to spread that message. Um, That's what I think is the value of that movie, is kind of just, like, putting the new line in the sand of, like, this is the place horror needs to go to spread whatever your message may be. Like, it is shocking for a point, and a lot of other people saw that and were like, okay, we're not going to go that far. Uh-huh. We're going to walk it back just a little bit, but now we know the new line in the sand. Now we know kind of the benchmark. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, so I'm, I am curious to hear, like, what what is the political slant of the movie like other other than just kind of the ability to shock because you know particularly i i think a lot of people including myself here it's like if you were trying to put the two most shocking words in the english language next to each other it might be cannibal holocaust like it might be (laughs) those two things it just feels like so you know obviously a kind of like provocative choice of title before i even know anything about the movie so like what what's the movie saying you know other than yeah look how fucked up we can be now so this was coming out in 1980 which was kind of at the dawn not the dawn the the apex of exploitation cinema mm-hmm. and kind of like uh, shockumentaries and honestly like the Vietnam war and, you know, the, the major broadcast of like war crimes and mm-hmm. kind of this new era where post hippie, you know, we're getting closer to the cold war. The world is becoming scarier and more violent. Oh, it's not really becoming scarier, or more violent. People are more aware of how scary and violent right. the world is. Thanks to like, TVs being in everyone's home yeah. and, you know, seeing footage of what we were doing in Vietnam and shit like this. And you you have a lot of people as filmmaking is becoming democratized. You have people going out there with cameras and making these very – these fear-mongering documentaries about third world countries or the way people live in other societies or just like, you know, social and political issues in countries which – America's not innocent of going to a place and killing a bunch of people, mm-hmm. obviously. But if you film a country maybe predominantly occupied by black people and be like, wow, look at how violent and nasty they are. Isn't that bad? Aren't you glad you live in Montana? Uh-huh. Damn. So you have films like Mondo Cane coming out in the 60s, which are these Italian shockumentaries, which are just like, I don't know, some people might argue otherwise. I find them basically devoid of message or meaning they're just violent fear-mongering exploitation garbage well and it's like the the meaning is probably like you know racism or or like you know colonization yeah. is okay or these you know yeah, these countries exactly. being shitholes is a message it's just one that sucks yeah a uh, uh, reading uh, a deep dive you can go on is reading about the directors of mondo kane and reading about their film africa adio which was just like an abomination to Mm -hmm. to art and humanity (laughs) um so ruggiero diodato kind of made this in in response to things like mondo cane and a lot of these shockumentary films and also just like the mainstream news world which as we were talking about was profiting off death and as he saw it maybe you agree or don't agree uh complicit in a lot of the death by you know giving it air by the, the thing he seemed to do is, like, these people set up the deaths, whether right. literally or metaphorically. Um, so he made this movie in which, you know, they, a search and rescue team is sent to South America to find a team of filmmakers who went there to document the indigenous tribes of South America. And they never made it back. And, oh, my God, they were killed. Well, we found their tapes. What happened? And what you find out mm. is the film crew went over there and quite literally raped and murdered a bunch of people and got their comeuppance. Mm. So it's 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 the the documentary team itself is the yes. are the ones perpetuating the violence. Exactly, and they 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 get what's coming to them. Right. Basically, um, notably, every member of the documentary team is white. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it it's it's 
obviously very rote these days, but it's like, who's the real monster <laughs> type film? You right. know what I'm saying? Uh, and the language it speaks in is extremity. Like, it is extremely violent. It's extremely gory. Even today, a lot of it still holds up in terms of just, like, its visual effects and, like, practical special effects. It is grisly. The end of this movie is extremely hard to watch. Do you have a sense, I'm sorry to interrupt, like, like the the kind of budget level that they're working at? You know, was this, like, a a movie that actually had a lot of money behind it or was it like very cheap and just used it in like really creative ways? So uh, Diodato has said it was about a hundred thousand dollars, which I don't know if that was like late seventies, hundred thousand or if he did the mental adjustment for inflation, but I mean, e- either way, it's still not a ton. Like yeah. even in the late seventies, uh, it's definitely helped a lot by being filmed on location mm-hmm. and including locals. Um, I, I don't believe they were using any, like, indigenous tribes, but they were using, you know, people in Colombia where the movie right. was filmed and, like, probably uh, saving a lot of money by casting people like that instead of flying out a bunch of, like, you know, Colombian Americans to be in uh-huh. the film. Um, and, um, but yeah, it, it was not a high-budget film by any means, but it struck a nerve, and I would wager the political messages were probably lost on a lot of people as mainstream movies tend to be right and more it became so popular and notorious because of the level of violence and graphic sexual violence Mm -hmm. and all this stuff uh that is what i think made cannibal holocaust so notorious and why we remember it is because it became this new line in the sand of like this is how graphic films are now this is the new era of cinema what the fuck are these italians doing because they're Uh oh no they've actually this is not a lone movie there's actually hundreds of these italian cannibal films what's going on over there um but it's definitely the best i would say Uh i think it's a great film it's whether you can stomach it or not is up to your own discretion um but i think it's an immensely important film to just the history of filmmaking and also just like it obviously was not the first political horror movie, but I think it is a very effective one. Uh-huh. And speaking through the language of extremeness, while not, I mean, it's shocking for the sake of shock, and that's the point. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel as vapid as you might think on a surface level. No, that's. I mean, I really, I really like hearing your description of it because previously in my head, I had it in the same place as like the Human Centipede. You know, which is sure. which is a movie where it's just like, hey, did you hear what this is about? This fucked up mm-hmm. thing. And, like, that's kind of where it starts and ends. And, like, look, I haven't seen Human Centipede. I don't believe that it has a deep-seated political message about, like, colonialism. Um, yeah. And and so it is really it is really fascinating to, to hear that that is the slant. And it's also, I, I just think this is so cool with your two choices that that they are two mockumentaries, you know, fake documentaries, mm-hmm. because this idea of, like, watching real things happen or supposedly real things happen is is such, you know, kind of like... it is It is the closest you can get to snuff without actually hurting people. You know, that it's yeah. like, if people are looking for kind of the thrills whatever those would be of like watching a snuff film but the filmmakers rightfully don't want to kill people you know making it making it feel like a documentary is kind of the angle you can take and again manhunt one is so interesting through that lens and people calling it you know like when it was called a murder simulator being like well that's not inaccurate you know that's not that's not totally off the mark but the fact is, a murder simulator, when contextualized like this, can be kind of an interesting cultural object. Yeah. So a few interesting notes about this movie uh-huh. is, one, we talked about this uh, in episode one or two. Uh, Diodato did have to stand trial mm-hmm. uh, for this movie. He was accused of killing five people, um, and he had to prove that they were all alive. Was it, do you know, was it like look at this murder in the film, there's no way that person survived? Like, what was that kind of the angle? Basically, yeah. Um, There's a very famous scene in Cannibal Holocaust where they stumble upon a um, 
the aftermath of an impaling, mm-hmm. and they show the impaled woman. You know, keep in mind, this is 1980 when this is coming out. Uh, they show basically a 360-degree view of this impaled woman, um, and it, it it still looks remarkably real. Um, you... And so in 1980, they were like, oh my god, they fucking impaled a woman for this film. Do you have any insight into, like, was it, like, a really well-made model, or were they, like, putting special effects on, you know, on top of someone? No, it was a real woman. She uh, She was sitting on a bicycle seat at the top of a long pole. And she craned her neck back. Oh my gosh! And had, a, had like oh, a, it was wow. foam or something right. like a foam end of a stick through her uh, mouth and just kind of sat in that position. I I always find it so so interesting when when special effects are are just kind of like you know you talked about it with the with the guinea pig uh, movie mm-hmm. of kind of being like cutting edge special effects and shitty VHSs is, is what yeah. made people think this was real and the idea of like now you go back and watch something and often though not always you were like how could anyone mistake yeah how could anyone think that train was going to come out of the screen and hit them you know but but like it our our eyes adjust this is this is kind of a tangent but like you ever see like a like a cgi movie and think like, wow, this looks like photo real. I can't believe it. And then you watch it in like ten years, and you're like, yeah, why did I think this looked so good? And it's because like your eyes yeah. have gotten better at seeing the lines in those things. I just think it's so interesting how that happens, kind of society wide. Yeah, um, I think this movie kind of holds up uh-huh. for real in the, in that department. I watched it two years ago for the first time in probably a decade, and it was like. Kind of shocked mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of it. I was like, that's great. Um, quick bit of trivia. In Euphoria Season 2, they use the theme song as one of the ending credits, oh, that's which is a really funny. inspired choice. <laughs> um, Sergio Leone, the famous uh, spaghetti western director. Right? Probably these days one of the greatest directors of all time. Uh, thought this movie was brilliant. Um, it has gone on to influence and inspire lots of people. I think maybe Tarantino has said it was an influence on him. Of course, Eli Roth uh, was a big proponent, put Diodato in Hostel, um, made his own homage, Green Inferno, an absolutely terrible film right? Uh, by an absolutely terrible filmmaker. Uh, yeah, Camel Holocaust, check it out. Uh, go to Does the Dog Die, my lord. Um, but... So it's like, also, does the dog die? No. Here are the list of animals that die in this movie. Also, at this point, though, like I feel like plenty of people have seen Cannibal Holocaust. It's not an underseen movie by any mm-hmm. means. It is a mainstream horror film. No, but I'm really i i am I'm so like pleased that we had this conversation because I just like that context is so you know it's like I I just it did not exist as a as an object with value in my mind again at at the same way as the human centipede and so i i you know this is just the interesting thing about this show is that like Mm. we play manhunt 2 and we're like what a piece of shit you know what a what a violent game with like nothing to say and we play manhunt 1 and we're like this is fascinating and the kind of the line between these things which really isn't totally visible unless you were like getting in deep with them you know mm-hmm. like it you can't read a wikipedia summary necessarily and decide which one has value and which one doesn't um and and so this is uh a just <laughs> good job i guess but like i i think it's i think it is really cool to kind of extend that out from from simply the games that we're covering sure on this uh i think I, I think Cannibal Holocaust fairly easy to stream. I think it's on Shutter. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, they have released it so many times on 4K, Blu-ray, HDR, anything you want. Um, I have one more. Okay. Unless you have one. No, go for it. This this is a quick one because I am not going to have as much to say about the value of it as a cultural artifact. Skinny Pig Two. Uh, it's uh, the only reason I'm recommending it is one. Directly ties into the things we said about. Yeah, r- remind of... people very quickly. I know you talked about it on an episode, but just like, yeah. what's this movie? Guinea Pig Two is a notorious Japanese splatter torture sh- film, straight to video. Um, it effectively they were these 
series of ultra gory films basically after number two they went in a completely different direction largely comedies drama just with a gory slant but the first two were these just vicious little pseudo snuff films Mm -hmm. um where a woman in both because that's just how they love to make these films um is murdered that's effectively it uh guinea pig one i do not recommend people watch it is mean and nasty and just very very hard to stomach even if it's not that gory to be honest um guinea pig 2 though the most notorious of them uh for its level of uh just graphic goriness amazing special effects too amazing so that it has been investigated in multiple countries around the world as a charlie sheen lost his mind over it charlie sheen a man was arrested in the uk at one point um it's been investigated a lot um so it's just that's effectively all it is it's um the reason i want to talk about it is one people thought it was a real snuff film directly applies to manhunt um two i i think this is a cool little movie honestly i think it's um i think it stands apart from other films like this for a variety of reasons one is just how famous it is this is not it's it's not as popular as something say like cannibal holocaust but this is not really that underground of a movie if you are in the horror world at all there's a high chance you have either heard about this movie or have seen it, honestly. It's kind of just one of the accepted ones from the extreme world that people are like, all right, we'll, we'll take this one. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing, the second reason it stands apart is like, it's a little classier. It's a little like, it's a little, it doesn't really indulge in the cruelty. Uh-huh. In fact, like in the story of Guinea Pig 2, the woman is not in pain. Like, she has been given oh, a drug. Huh. Okay. Yeah, she's been given a drug that actually makes this, like, not hurt and sort of pleasurable for her. Mm-hmm. So there's no screaming. There's no, like, there's no, like, close up on this woman's, like, like uh, torment or terror. And um, there's also no sexual violence, which is a huge problem in a lot of these movies. Um, and what you're left with is just, like, this kind of these special effects makers resume like it's just this it was made in 1985 for what feels like 30 dollars, uh-huh. and it's still some of the more impressive special effects you'll ever see i think it's just like this interesting cultural oddity that kind of lays a lot of groundwork for where practical effects were gonna go you know you think of like all the gory films that came out after in Japan. I don't know that it was seen too widely in the 80s in America. It came. It was definitely here in the 90s. But a lot of people saw this movie and they were like, that's what we can do with special effects? Like, we can go this hard? We can make these, these very realistic bodies for this amount of money and they can look this certain way? It kind of, it kind of set a template for a lot of filmmakers beyond just the underground or the extreme scene mm-hmm. in other horror scenes like this this inspired a lot of people so i recommend it just as like a pretty cool little cultural touch point as well as just like it's sometimes fun to seek out these like really notoriously bad things and watch them for yourself and i think ultimately if you can handle gore you will find this is not that uh it's not a film worth clutching your pearls over uh-huh. it's just kind of like wow that's a you could honestly see shit like this on YouTube and be like, wow, one dude in Iowa made this? That's crazy. He's really talented. <laughs> Iowa and Montana. The dude's getting shouted at. <laughs> uh, that's what it feels like. It's, um, I think it's a cool little film. It's directed by Hideshi Hino, one of the more important manga uh, horror manga authors in Japan, um, who also made two guinea was, pig films. Was he, was he an author... Which came first, or was he doing them at the same... Like, was he publishing while making these movies? Yeah, he was a widely celebrated okay. horror author before this, yeah. Um, and the... Uh, I, I I don't actually know exactly why he made these, other than maybe he was just friends with the producer and director of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, an important thing to know about the guinea pig films is they were unbelievably popular in Japan. Uh, like, there are reports that they made more than blockbusters at the time, which... Japan's film industry notoriously went through a really hard slump in the 80s and 90s, which led to a lot of straight-to-video stuff. So I don't know that you can say, like, it was making as much money as blockbusters, but the film industry was doing great because it was really struggling back Uh then. Um, 
but they were extremely popular um and now they're kind of taboo in japan due to being tied to a serial killer over there but um point being cool little flicks check them out if you're into horror you've probably know about it at this point um i didn't put anything underground on my list um okay blake at the end of this i have a little surprise for you which is that i want us to decide what our next uh series is this this will be this will be a little nebula exclusive so i'm going to present we have a spreadsheet i'm gonna present two to you and i just i just want to let's let's just decide between these two uh number one uh the darkness series the darkness one and Mm. two these are the games that i feel like are most well known by having those little tentacle heads they're first person shooters and then they've got little tentacles and you can like do things with the tentacles you have powers as well as Mm -hmm. shooting guns uh the first one a ps3 360 game the second one ps3 360 pc uh so that's right two-part series number one second choice the prototype series the open world uh go anywhere kill anyone get a bunch of tendrils that shoot out of your body and like impale people walking by and do that also two games open world as opposed to linear like the darkness are uh i'm pretty sure prototypes available on pc as well as being ps3 and 360 games um though i i feel like i'm i'm between those two i mean if you really don't want to do either of those we can do another one but i feel like one of those would have good energy for our next our next series did you put the getaway on here no you did (laughs) that's interesting i remember thinking i should put it on there but i don't actually remember putting it on there um man okay are you leaning towards one over the other i'm really curious about i so i've of all of those games i've only played the darkness two that is the the one that I've played before, and I don't have a great memory of it. Okay. Um, I'm really curious about the Darkness One because I know people really like the story of that game. Um, okay. But I would honestly be happy with either, especially because I did look up prototype on how long to beat, and it's like eleven hours. It's not. It's not like a massive open world game of of the kind that we have now. You know what? I think. I'm leaning towards the darkness. I've always wanted to play those games. Mm -hmm. I've heard nothing but good things about them. Um, And I just want to become more acquainted with Jackie Estacada. (laughs) That's right. A goal that we all have for 2023. That's right. Um, Cool. Well, that will happen at some point in the future. here's, Here's my point in doing this. We're planning it now. So we're, we're going to do this series. No more, you know, two-year breaks between miniseries of these episodes. Um, but yeah, happy bonus episode. Thanks for listening on Nebula. And stick around, because there's more cool stuff coming. If you watch anything I recommended and you get upset, I gave you all the info you needed to protect yourself. That's not my bad. You can't sue me in a court of law. Bye.